You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by The Acting Company. Don't miss their current production and New York Times critic pick, X or Betty Shabazz versus The Nation, which has now been extended to February 25th, 2018. Marcus Gardley's hit new play about Malcolm X's final days in New York City, called A Stroke of Inspiration by The New York Times, continues its run at the Theater at St. Clement's on West 46th Street. Tickets at theactingcompany.org or call 866-811-4111. Use discount code BBS39 for $39 tickets for performances up to February 18th. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show. Sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. The Bowery Boys episode 252, Underground Railroad, The Escape Through New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we're going underground to talk about New York's role in one of the most important and certainly most mythologized parts of 19th century American history. Our subject is the Underground Railroad, that clandestine path that helped thousands of enslaved people from the American South escape to freedom in the northern states and to Canada. 
Now, New York's relationship with slavery and the abolitionist movement is pretty complicated, and it would take much longer than 50 minutes that we have today mm-hmm. to tell well. Um, and we've, we've dabbled in the subject before. For one thing, we need to get our heads around the fact that New York was in many ways a pro-slavery city, or not at all uh, the liberal bastion that many people take yeah. it for today. And, and that was due to a number of factors, which we'll get into. But broadly speaking, most of it was because the city's businesses were so deeply invested in southern plantations and in the cotton business. We're going to talk about a lot of prominent abolitionists uh, that were from New York City and also those people who were agents, station agents on the Underground Railroad, as they were called. And we'll try to make our way through the idea of what the Underground Railroad even was, like what comprised the Underground Railroad. Because for one thing, it was so secretive that historical documents are Mm -hmm. pretty hard to even come by. Now, today we're going to encounter some big names of the abolition movement, names that you probably know very well, like Frederick Douglass, Henry Ward Beecher, and Harriet Tubman. But we're also going to bring you the stories of some men and women that you should know. People like David Ruggles, Louis Napoleon, Abigail Hopper Gibbons, and James Hamlet. And of course, we'll talk about some places uh, that you can still visit today that were part of this movement. And that will take us finally at the end of the show to Brooklyn to visit one of the most famous stops on the Underground Railroad, a, a place that became referred to as the Grand Central Depot of the Underground Railroad. So join us as we take a closer look at the Underground Railroad's New York Connection. Okay, well, Greg, this is a formidable subject. Mm-hmm. Um, how... How are we even tackling this? Yeah, I mean, at the core of this show today, we're going to be handling some very big issues. Basically, the idea of whether a law in the United States can determine the worth and the value of a human being. Do people who make those laws get to determine whether some people are lesser than others, that some people are actually the property of others? And then whether it is better for those with a more clear, moral, humanistic worldview, if it's better for those people to break those laws flagrantly and at great risk to themselves because it is, in the end, the right thing to do. Well, that's a rather tall order. Yeah. Well, do you remember when we used to do shows about Broadway musicals and comic books? Remember uh, those days? That was last month. <laughs> yeah. Well, today we're, we'll be presenting just a small sliver of this story, and one that requires many different voices to tell. So at the very end of the show, even more than we usually do, we're going to be giving you a list of walking tours, museum exhibitions, websites, and books that will be able to round out this story even more. And to be clear, what you just described really was like the question of slavery and whether or not to break those laws. But in today's show, we're kind of narrowing the scope down to really talk about the Underground Railroad as it pertained to New York City. That is where we'll be leading on this show. But I want to begin by talking about three misconceptions that people have about the institution of slavery in the United States. 
The first misconception, the first kind of like vague misconception is that slavery was essentially a southern problem and that here in the north, which I mean north of the Mason-Dixon line, which early in the 19th century was the southern border of Pennsylvania, that the north was actually a safe haven for people of color. In fact, slavery was practiced in all 13 colonies and in most places in this country well into the 19th century. Slavery is even baked into the founding documents of the United States of America. In 1790, there are almost 700,000 enslaved people in the United States. That is 17% of the population, Tom. Most of those people working in in agriculture, in farms, in plantations. And how long would slavery remain legal in New York? Well, in 1799, New York State would pass a law that would free the children of those enslaved people who were in New York. Okay. And then by 1827, all enslaved people in New York were freed. But generally speaking, although they were free... They were no longer slave. They were free people. Mm-hmm. They still had a very limited form of freedom than that enjoyed by white New Yorkers and white Americans. Now, in an old podcast that I did last year called Before Harlem, I mentioned that that law in 1827 gave the right to vote to black men with property. But in reality, those men had limited opportunities to acquire property. So it was really kind of a bogus freedom for for early black New Yorkers. And on top of that, the property uh, requirements were even higher for black men in Mm -hmm. order to vote than they were for white men. So a total double standard. But even still, there were some freedoms enjoyed Mm -hmm. here in the North that were not available to them in the South. And this is especially true at the start of the 19th century with the introduction of an invention that would grow rather insidious as the years go by, that would be Eli Whitney's cotton gin, which would soon become central to the Southern economy and made the South economically powerful because of it, because cotton became their main crop. But as a result, they relied even more heavily on the labor of enslaved people. By 1830, in the United States, there were 2 million slaves, of which most of them were in the South. By 1860, near the start of the Civil War, 4 million enslaved people. But there were people who managed to escape these terrible conditions. Who were they exactly, and and how did they manage to get out? Well, there is a sort of a misconception, I think, that there were like whole groups of people or even families that fled. The sad part is a lot of families were broken up in the South, first of all. Number two... It usually was better to escape if you were by yourself. You stood a better chance if you didn't have a group of people. And so as a result, most fugitives, 95% of them, in fact, were people who fled alone. And most of them were actually young men in their teens and 20s. And of course, this wasn't just a matter of just, you know, you didn't just like up and leave the place where you were enslaved. First of all, if you were brave enough to be able to venture out on your own. You didn't know where you were going. The enslaved people were often kept, were mostly kept uneducated and only had a very vague sense of of the landscape. The only thing you might have heard was that you needed to head north. So Tom, there was only one thing. Can you guess what the one thing that people had to guide them to head north? 
I imagine that they looked to the sky, to the stars. Yes, right. The North Star was the only thing they had. They had no maps. They had no directions. From a slave narrative written by a man named Jim Pembroke, who escaped from a Maryland plantation in 1827, quote, How can I expect to succeed? I have no knowledge of distance or direction. I know that Pennsylvania is a free state, but I know not where its soil begins or where that of Maryland ends. Now, this man, by the way, Jim Pembroke, would eventually make his way to Brooklyn, change his name to James Pennington, and would be one of the key figures in the abolitionist movement in New York. But hold on. They didn't just lack a compass here uh, for guidance. They also were lacking clothing and shelter and food. Yeah. They had to rely on the kindness of others. You never, They never knew where, where their next meal was coming from, or even if you could trust that kindness, for there was another thing hanging over a fugitive's plight here. And that is, in 1793, the Fugitive Slave Act, which required by law that escaped people be captured by authorities and returned to their owners. This would inspire a whole industry of bounty hunters, slave catchers, who, if they were captured, would not perhaps even be returned to their former place but they could have even been sold down further south into more loathsome conditions. However, there were fortunately people who helped guide these fugitive slaves toward right, freedom. Right, And even here in the south, there were many who abhorred the institution of slavery. So thanks to the effort of these who were fighting against this institution, the Underground Railroad was formed. Now, this leads me to misconception number two. The misconception that there was an actual railroad. <laughs> right. Uh, there are people who think that it was. The, None of our listeners. Well, I, I, hope, I hope not. But in fact, the Underground Railroad was neither entirely underground, although there were some underground hiding spaces. It was neither entirely underground, nor was it a railroad. Although we should note that many people would eventually hop on trains as mm -hmm. part of their journey north. Yes, this really began in the early 19th century before the advent of railroad. But by the time that there was a more formulated route for people, trains were indeed around and those could be used. So the development of these escape routes and that support system coincides with the development of the actual railroad. Yeah, I mean, it was... Which a, it, led to it being named the Underground Railroad. Yeah, it was a new technology by the... T you know, so they, they borrowed some of the phrases even. The hiding places were sometimes called stations. The people who were escaping were often referred to as passengers. And those who assisted fugitives were called station agents. And who exactly were these operators or these conductors? They were they were both white and African American. Yeah, correct? yeah. Naturally, the very first loosest sort of network was a collection of places passed along word of mouth that were mostly havens by freed Black Americans. Many of them had escaped slavery themselves. As the years went on, soon white abolitionists joined and helped develop the Underground Railroad further. 
at the core of its development here were the Quakers, who were a religious group located in particular in Philadelphia, who were morally against slavery. They lived in a great many places by the early 19th century, and a lot of them were merchants and, you know, and had developed businesses. And there were Quakers here in New York. Yeah. And these congregations of Quakers could, of course, communicate with each other, thus building upon this already incredibly loose network of homes and churches that were involved in helping fugitive slaves. It wasn't all Quakers, though. It was some people of other faiths, again, white and black, freed slaves, people who had always lived in the North and had never been enslaved. By the 1830s and 1840s, you had a well-organized system for helping fugitive slaves. Did this system operate with any kind of a map or a diagram of these safe houses? I mean, nothing that was clearly printed out that would have been like not the best idea. There were, of course, over the years, developed four principal routes that moved from the south to the north with many possible tracks along that route. So there were many different ways to escape. Four principal routes. Right. Now, for the purpose of our story... We're going to focus on one of the routes that started around North Carolina into Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and then into the free states of Pennsylvania, where many would arrive in Philadelphia. Then they would go to Camden, New Jersey, and then travel through New Jersey to get to New York City. And then from there, finally pass through New York State, either through Buffalo or Syracuse, where they would then cross over to Canada. And then there would also be some that would continue north into the United States up to as far as Boston. And you brought us to New York City. One, of those, one <laughs> yes. of those routes passes through New York. It's interesting that you said through New York, mm-hmm. because then most people were continuing farther north. Yeah, and so that brings me to misconception number three, and that is that New York City is some kind of bastion of safety and diversity mm-hmm. uh, and must have been a safe haven for fugitive slaves, right? That and, is, and that fugitive slaves would want to stay here. Right. Now, it is true that the state of New York by the 1830s was a very key site and central to the anti-slavery movement. But that was the state itself. That was upstate. New York City was actually very, very dangerous for those people who had been former slaves. Dangerous because well, although, there were bounty hunters? Yes, the streets were crawling with bounty hunters. But by the 1830s, although the state had abolished slavery, New York City was extremely pro-South. Which I mentioned in the introduction because the city was just so heavily invested in Southern plantations and also in the cotton business. Yeah, not just the goods and services, but the banks, the insurance companies, they were all tied up in the South. And there was a sizable free black population in New York at this time. By, the, by 1830, there were 14,000 people in the free black community. And where were most of them living in New York? So there wasn't really like a specific place. Uh, five Points, also in the area of Tribeca, mm-hmm. um, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. So in this light... It would be New York's freed black population working with prominent abolitionist New Yorkers of the time to help develop the portion of the Underground Railroad that would wind through New York and through the independent city of Brooklyn. 
The white abolitionist movement here in New York was led in the 1830s by the Silk Merchant Brothers Arthur and Lewis Tappan, who would eventually form an organization called the American Anti-Slavery Society. And and the Tappans, these Tappans brothers, were pretty religious, weren't they? They were kind of well-known for their staunch religious beliefs, but they were also very wealthy and very successful. So thus, they were able to draw attention to their abolitionist cause. And keep in mind, Tom, at a time when the character of the city is itself changing due to the mass immigration of Irish and Germans that are coming to the city. And the Tappan's position, and really that of the abolitionists in New York, could be a very dangerous cause to take up. Absolutely. In the summer of 1834, there was a riot of several days, great violence by racist mobs against abolitionists and black New Yorkers. It led to the destruction of black churches, as well as the home of Lewis Tappan, which was destroyed. So this is the environment in which the Underground Railroad developed in New York City. So through the rest of the show here, we're going to start telling different stories of how New Yorkers were committed to the cause of abolition, and especially in this extreme way as operators of the Underground Railroad. Well, one of the stories that I'd like to spend a little bit of time on here is the story of a man named David Ruggles. His name is not very familiar, unfortunately, to most people today, but his, his actions and those who he would assist would go on to have national and even international mm-hmm. consequences. Ruggles was born in 1810 in Norwich, Connecticut. His parents were freed blacks, and he was the eldest of five children. Now, in 1827, when he was just 17 years old, he moved to New York and he made a living operating a grocery store which he did for about five years while he was also getting involved in the city's, you know, burgeoning anti-slavery movement. And five years later, in 1832, he devoted himself full-time to selling subscriptions for a newspaper that was an anti-slavery publication called The Emancipator. Now, was this the kind of paper that you went door-to-door selling subscriptions to? Well, more than that, he actually went state-to-state. He traveled... Mm far and wide in the North, selling subscriptions and giving lectures, and in the process, really building up his contacts with other abolitionists along the way. He would give these lectures and promote the cause in New York as well. So two years later, in 1835, a group was formed called the Friends of Human Rights to study the problem of kidnapping, because the city was just crawling with these bounty hunters People lived in constant fear of being arrested and even just taken off the streets, never to be seen again. And forget about a fair trial. Mm -hmm. Well, this group, Friends of Human Rights, in turn formed a group called the Vigilance Committee uh, to fight this very danger. And David Ruggles was elected the leader of that group. So he was certainly one of the most prominent black New Yorkers of his day. Yeah, because uh, he had begun to operate a print shop and also a bookstore and library uh, that specialized in circulating anti-slavery publications. And he operated this right out of his home at Church and Lispinard Streets. And this was 1835, the year after these riots, these anti-abolitionist riots. And they were one of the reasons that the Vigilance Committee was formed. 
they were really an activist and a, a communications outreach organization. They got the word out about missing people uh, who they suspected had been kidnapped. And they warned others about suspected kidnappers who were in the city, who were operating, you know, people to be wary of and mm-hmm. to stay away from. In the book Bound for Canaan about the Underground Railroad, uh, the author, Fergus Bordwich, explains how Ruggles put out the word Uh, Writing, quote, let parents and guardians and children take warning. Our city is infested with a gang of kidnappers. Let every man look to his safety. So did Ruggles have any involvement on the Underground Railroad in New York? Absolutely. That was their other practical function was to help those who had arrived in New York, whether, you know, was finding a safe place to spend the night or to get them something to eat. But another function of the Vigilance Committee was to help enslaved people who were living and being kept illegally in New York City. Ruggles was actually famous for boarding ships in New York Harbor looking for hidden slaves and and even for heading into New York homes where residents were rumored to keep slaves. So David Ruggles was incredibly bold and pretty much unafraid to put his own life in danger. And he was repeatedly in danger, you know, operating this bookstore and this print shop, but also in physical harm. For example, in December of 1835, kidnappers broke into his house and he believes tried to kidnap him while he was upstairs. He went to the authorities the next day to report the case. And instead of helping him out, they locked him up because... For reporting it? Well, because the the constable allegedly was also part of this kidnapping gang and Ruggles believed planned to try to sell him, Ruggles, off to people in the South. Who do you turn to in these situations? But despite all of the dangerous conditions that he faced, he continued to operate the committee and to host those who were in need. The most famous case of this was in September of 1838, when a 20-year-old named Frederick Bailey approached him for help, came to his house. Now, Bailey had grown up a slave working on a, a Maryland plantation, but he moved to Baltimore, where he worked for a number of years building ships. But he still was forced to hand over all of his money at the end of the week to his master. After three years of this, in the summer of 1838, Bailey made a run for it, and he boarded first a train and then a boat and then finally another train that brought him to New York. And in New York, he realized that he was in a very dangerous position because he he could be reported, he could be arrested at any moment, and he really didn't know who he could turn to to confide in. He had nothing. He found himself homeless and hungry. And finally, after daring to speak to a few friendly strangers, he was taken to David Ruggles' house on Lispinard and Church for help. And Ruggles took him in. How long did Bailey stay with Ruggles here at Lispinard Street? He stayed with him for several days, long enough for Ruggles to send for Bailey's wife, uh, who joined him and was married here in Ruggles' house by the Reverend James Pennington, who you mentioned before. Pennington, who was also who had also escaped from a Maryland plantation. And Pennington, who you mentioned, had all had also taken on this new name. Yeah. Well, as was the custom, Bailey also took on a new name and called himself Frederick Johnson. And from New York, 
Johnson and his new wife moved to New Bedford, Massachusetts to find work because he was a skilled shipbuilder. And once there in New Bedford, he was told that his name simply would not work because there were way too many Johnsons living in New Bedford. So he was finally given another final new name, and that would be, of course, Douglas. For that is how Frederick Douglass now remembered as one of the greatest abolitionists, orators, social reformers, and statesmen the country has ever had. That is the story of how he passed through the Underground Railroad in New York in 1838. The story of Frederick Douglass is incredibly inspiring. Whatever happened to David Ruggles? Well, the, the end of his story takes a rather odd and sad turn because he had been struggling throughout his lifetime, uh, really with many different health issues, especially his eyesight. And in 1839, he retired really from this committee. He stopped working on it because he really was going blind. Uh, however, he would live another 10 years, much of it outside the city, trying out new treatments, and then finally, for many years, operating a health spa, trying out new hydrotherapy techniques. But he would be long remembered um, among abolitionists, including Frederick Douglass, for the great work that he did here in New York on the Underground Railroad. Now, in the 1850s, the Underground Railroad will be more necessary than ever. We'll get to that story after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So as we mentioned earlier, the thing that made escaping the South extra treacherous was the Fugitive Slave Act that had been enacted in the 1790s. However, by the 1840s, where all of the northern states had actually abolished slavery, those northern states basically found ways around the Fugitive Slave Act, whether it was lawsuits or other laws that counteracted the federal law. So it wasn't being enforced. Yeah, and by 1842, there was actually a Supreme Court case that pretty much invalidated it. Well, for a lot of different reasons that we can't get into right now, the Compromise of 1850, which actually brought California in as a free state. Right. Also brought in a lot of things that were more favorable to the South, including a brand new Fugitive Slave Act. A tougher act. A tougher one. One that placed a lot of onus on these northern states, on the officials, the law enforcement officials of these states to capture escaped slaves and, of course, rebolstered the underground bounty hunters. 
This new law was even stricter and increased the penalties for those who assisted in their escape. You could go to jail for harboring a fugitive. The law was enacted almost immediately, eight days after it was signed. There was a man named James Hamlet who lived in Williamsburg in the 1850s, back when it was briefly an independent city. Mr. Hamlet was captured, retrieved by bounty hunters. He had been enslaved at a plantation in Maryland. Well, because of this law, he was returned to Maryland and returned to an existence as a slave on this plantation. So he had been living in Williamsburg. He was captured and sent back down to a plantation. Yeah, this is a a very terrifying thing that happened to hundreds of people in the 1850s. Fortunately for Mr. Hamlet, there's a happy ending here. Amazingly, hundreds of people gathered at the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, that's the AME Zion Church, gathered here to raise the money for his freedom. And so they managed through this through this church and through other organizations who who got involved with this, they raised the $800 needed to buy his freedom. And Mr. Hamlet returned to New York. And this is something that was happening all over the North. Yes. Um, and in religious organizations. In a minute, we're going to go to Brooklyn, where Plymouth Church was doing the same thing. They mm-hmm. were raising the money to buy these people's freedoms, mm-hmm. which was also controversial because some saw it as buying into and really continuing that system of paying for somebody else's liberty. Well, that money, which was a sizable amount of money, went into the pocket of the plantation owner. People had conflicting views about whether this was a good idea or not. But it does underscore, again, uh, that this was a very dangerous time, the 1850s, a time when the Underground Railroad and a a network of truly safe houses Mm -hmm. was more important than ever. Far from being scared off by this, it mobilized efforts. The Tappans, for instance, who had just were abolitionists, but were not deeply involved in the Underground Railroad, which was considered a more militant way of handling the problem. Well, once this Fugitive Act came along, they began actively funding stations and tracks along the Underground Railroad. All right. Well, we've talked a lot about the Underground Railroad coming through New York and David Ruggles' shop and library. Um, But what were the other actual stops in New York? Do we know precisely where they were? Well, by the fact of its very nature of being secretive, you you know, you couldn't advertise that you were harboring fugitive slaves. Or even really keep records. Yeah, so because you would be arrested if they were discovered. So there's a lot of mystery and folklore. And I'm going to list a few of them, but I think the important thing to remember is that there were many, many more than this that have been kind of lost to history because perhaps they harbored only a dozen people, but nothing was written down. And so Mm. we don't really know. The few that I'm going to mention here are places that there is documentation or that there was some kind of proof that we can point to to say this was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Now, a big abolitionist publisher during the 1850s was a man named Sidney Howard Gay. He moved to New York in 1843 and began publishing a newspaper called the National Anti-Slavery Standard. He published it from an office on Nassau Street, just steps from City Hall. This office 
publish the newspaper, but would also become a place where hundreds of fugitive slaves would be harbored, would be taken care of, and would be sent off to further locations north. Now, Gay was a white man working with a sort of a team of both white and black abolitionists. One of these people was an extraordinary man named Louis Napoleon, who has a very unique life story, especially in regards to this particular moment. He was born free to an enslaved woman in New York in the year 1800. It's also believed that his father was Jewish, so he may have been of Hmm. mixed race. He's really kind of a superhero of the Underground Railroad. It is believed that he personally helped up to 3,000 people make their way from Philadelphia to New York, directing them to Gay's office and to other stations around New York. So he was a conductor. He was a conductor, right. And his houses, he lived in various places in New York. All of them are believed to also be places along the Underground Railroad. And he was also an activist out in public as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, even in 1850, Mr. Napoleon... The year of the law. the, The year of this new Fugitive Slave Act... Louis Napoleon organized the very first gathering of African Americans on the steps of City Hall. Wow. But wait, if if records are scarce, if nothing is being written down, how do we even know about this incredible work that Napoleon was doing? Well, almost nothing was written down. Gay, the publisher here that he was working with, that Louis Napoleon was working with, actually kept a record of fugitives that came through his particular location. Hmm. This record of fugitives, which had evidence of 200 people, their reasons for escape and their routes of escape, this was recently found by the author Eric Foner. And this is further detailed in Foner's book, Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. Another individual that Gay worked with in 1856 was perhaps the most famous person associated with the Underground Railroad, a woman named Harriet Tubman. Perhaps the most famous conductor of them all. Yeah, uh, he actually refers to her in his notes as Captain Harriet Tubman. So she was already uh, quite an esteemed figure in the Underground Railroad and abolitionist movement by this time. So here we have offices, we have homes, but churches and places of worship were also stops on the Underground Railroad. The aforementioned African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church Mm -hmm. should be no surprise that that was also a stop on the Underground Railroad. That church was located at Church and Leonard Street. Oh, at Church and Leonard, that's very close to to David Ruggles' shop. Yeah. But there's a lot of activity in Tribeca. Well, I have one more. Actually, the African-American abolitionist Theodore Wright, who was one of the founding members of this anti-slavery society that Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, he lived at a house at White Street and West Broadway, which is also believed to be a shelter for the Underground Railroad. Are any of these buildings still around? Well, Wright's house is actually still there. Today, it's a J. Crew. (laughs) But it has a nice little neon liquor store sign from from the era when it was an actual liquor store. Is there um, a historical marker? No, there isn't. 
However, there is a marker on the site of David Ruggles' old home and Prince Doran Library. The building has changed. It is now a La Colombe coffee shop at the corner of Church and Lisbonard. Now, we're spending a lot of time downtown, but believe it or not, there were some underground railroad stops in what would be considered uptown in the late 1850s. Let me take you to 339 West 29th Street to the home of Abigail Hopper Gibbons. Her father was one of New York's most prominent abolitionists, the Quaker named Isaac Hopper, who himself helped facilitate the escape of dozens of people. His daughter took after her father, and she and her husband vigorously took up the cause as well and made her house here in what's considered Upper Chelsea a stop on the Underground Railroad. And Hopper's townhouse is still there today. Yeah, you should go buy it and envision the following story, because many years later in 1863... She was still living there. She was known for living there and being a famed abolitionist. Well, in 1863, during the terrible Civil War draft riots, Hopper's house was beset by the mob, and she and her family had to escape by climbing to the roof of the building and then jumping down to other buildings, getting to the corner where there was a Hebrew orphan asylum where they were able to to hide. Wow. So these are all sites in the city of New York Mm -hmm. during the 19th century. But meanwhile, there was plenty of abolitionist and underground railroad stops happening over in the city of Brooklyn. Oh, sure. There was believed to be an underground railroad stop in the freed black community of Weeksville, which I also mentioned in my show last year called Before Harlem. Check that out for more information on Weeksville, which I love. But they also had prominent churches and residents, in particular, in downtown Brooklyn. So kind of a little bit more, it would have been more densely populated than Weeksville would have been, for instance. At 227 Duffield Street, there were two abolitionists named Thomas and Harriet Truesdell, who were friends with William Lloyd Garrison, who was the, the famed abolitionist leader. They also kept fugitive slaves in their basement. And that building is still there today. Yeah, it was recently saved from demolition. And in honor of that, and and in honor of a couple other sites around it that are associated with the abolitionist movement, that little lane of Deffield Street is called Abolitionist Place. And that's in today's downtown Brooklyn. But if we just head up to Brooklyn Heights, we're now going to go to perhaps the most famous stop in New York City today, on the Underground Railroad, Plymouth Church, uh, which was once referred to as the Grand Central Depot of the Underground Railroad because it was rumored to have helped so many escaped slaves. The church, which is located at Hicks and Orange Street in Brooklyn Heights, dates back to 1847 when it was formed really for the purposes of luring out to Brooklyn Uh, It's first exceptionally dynamic and very well-known and talented preacher, Henry Ward Beecher. Now, Beecher was born in Connecticut in 1813, the son of Lyman Beecher, who was one of the nation's most famous congregational preachers of his time. Young Henry would go off to Amherst College and then off to a theology school near Cincinnati, Ohio. After that, he got his first job as a minister in Indiana, and he worked and built quite a reputation 
there in Indiana until 1847 when he made the jump out to Brooklyn. Now, we should also mention that Henry Ward Beecher had a pretty important and famous sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who would write her famous anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, in 1852. And the success of that book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, should really reinforce how the the movement was actually growing so large and Mm -hmm. had really gotten a lot of the country behind it. I should add, however, that... That Mr. Beecher's story takes on a rather salacious twist in the 1870s, a little bit outside the scope of this show. So if you want to hear all about that, I recorded a solo show many, 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 many years back. in 2008. 2008 on the life of Henry Ward Beecher and about his sensational adultery trials, which almost brought him down. But focusing back on this story, in Brooklyn, Beecher would become one of the nation's most famous abolitionists. And he even held multiple rather showy mock slave auctions. Uh, You were talking earlier about how money would be raised to buy the freedom of slaves. Mm -hmm. Well, well, on multiple occasions, uh, in 1848 and again in 1860, Beecher held sort of fake auctions in which he raised the money once at the Broadway Tabernacle before an audience in 1848, and then in 1860 before his congregation, famously raising the money for these young women's freedom. But Beecher and his church were also a very important connection for the New York Underground Railroad. Greg, let's head to Plymouth Church now to hear more about this. All right, Greg. Well, here we are in Brooklyn Heights. Lovely place. We are at Hicks and Orange Streets, and uh, it's a lovely, chilly, snowy morning. And we're going to head into Plymouth Church. And we're walking along the, the iron fence and turning into the gateway and walking into the courtyard of the church. We're, we're going to head inside and we're going to meet with John Sibilia and Beth Fleischer, who work for Plymouth Church. But before we go in, I just want to, to kind of describe the scene here because Plymouth is actually kind of a series of buildings connected with this kind of glorious arcade. And there's a, there's a sort of open courtyard in front of it that faces out into the street. Now, in this particular courtyard, there is a relief of Abraham Lincoln, who's going to pop up in our story later, and a statue of Henry Ward Beecher. Tom, let's go ahead and head in. I believe our guests of honor are waiting for us. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Beth. Hello, John. Hello, Beth. Hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to see you. Thanks for meeting with us. I just want to describe really quickly this wonderful room that we're in. You can give me this give us the particulars, but it's essentially the museum to Plymouth Church. It features wonderful paintings of the men and women who have passed through this church, and of course, artifacts that speak to its long history. So there are rotating uh, exhibits right now. It's Lincoln in Brooklyn. Uh, This is the only church where Lincoln actually came to worship. He and Henry Ward Beecher were friends. It has a number of interesting artifacts, including a piece of the coat he was wearing when he was assassinated. And we also have a piece of Plymouth Rock in the arcade. 
Uh, You're not joking. That's an actual piece of rock. That is, an, and it's, and it is actually Plymouth Rock. Greg is touching Plymouth Rock right now. I have now. I have so much in common with the Pilgrims. So Henry Ward Beecher, you just mentioned, was he an abolitionist uh, before he came here? Well, he was opposed to slavery, but he became an abolitionist, a very public one, after he did his first auction at Broadway Tabernacle in Lower Manhattan, where Mary Edmondson and her sister were being sold into slavery. And most people think of slavery as a cotton field. They were going to be sold in New Orleans as fancy girls or girls men would fancy. What needed to happen was their freedom needed to be purchased. And so Lewis Tappan suggested to their father, who was a freedman, to come over and get Beecher to come speak, because he was a really good speaker. Beecher went. He first began by saying, I should be ashamed if it were written down that such an assembly was gathered here of more than 2,000 souls and the poor pittance of $2,000 couldn't be raised, which, by the way, would be $65,000 today. And as he continued to speak, he became an actor. And he said, who bids? 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 2,500, going, going, last call, gone. Beecher became famous as an abolitionist at that moment in time. And so at Plymouth, abolitionists started to join this church because of him. And many churches were afraid to even speak on this topic. There was a fugitive slave law, and churches even then were afraid to get too political. Not Beecher. It was that invitation and that auction that lifted him as an abolitionist. What's remarkable about that story is that that sounds rather shocking to us today. The idea of like a minister holding a slave auction on a stage. It was shocking for completely different reasons, though, back in the day, back in this period. This was seen as kind of a radical act, especially for a man of God, right? It's also publicity. If there is one thing that Henry Ward Beecher was, he was a guy who knew how to get attention to topics that he really, really cared about. And just to uh, speak to the word fancy girl, let's just cut to the chase. What we're talking about is young women being sold against their will to serve as sex slaves down in New Orleans. There ain't nothing fancy about that. So what Henry did was rouse the public out of their complacency by staging an event that he knew was going to garner a tremendous amount of attention. Now, people may have heard of perhaps the more famous of the slave auctions that actually occurred here at Plymouth Church if, many years later in 1860s. And this is actually immortalized in this lovely painting over here that's also sitting here in the hallway. Greg is pointing to a, a painting of Beecher with his hand on top of a young girl's head. This young woman, her name or her nickname was Pinky. So her grandmother... Uh, was a slave. Her brothers were slaves. But the grandmother reached out to Beecher because she had heard of him and she was in Maryland and pleaded with him to get the freedom for her granddaughter, Sally Diggs, was her name. Uh, and Beecher agreed. She was nine years old at the time. She was light-skinned, fair-skinned. Fair and Beecher liked to auction lighter-skinned individuals because people would relate to them more. They'd say, oh, they look just like us. And, and so th there was a relevance for him in that. Because the congregation is completely white at this point? Very white, but not completely. There were free, freed blacks who did go to 
church here, and he had friends who were preaching who were black in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. And so there was the auction, and he needed to raise money. And so 1100 bucks was raised. Wow. Uh, and that's one passing of the plate. That never happens today when you pass the plate in church. <laughs> uh, 1100 wouldn't be bad, but in those days, that would have been about $32,000. Wow. Uh, there was also jewelry put in. He returned all of the jewelry except the one ring, which today is known as the Freedom Ring. He placed the ring, and this speaks to what Beth was saying, the, the master showman and publicist. He places the ring on Pinky's finger and says, with this ring, I do wed thee to freedom. And believe it or not, you have the ring right over here in this display case. It's a beautiful gold ring, but again, one thing that I would like to emphasize here is this girl was not being sold into cotton fields. This girl was being sold into sex work, into prostitution as a very young girl. One of the reasons that she was seen as desirable, one of the reasons that she was objectified by her owner was because she was light-skinned. So there are so many hideous aspects of what was going on at this time in this country, but just the thought of this very young girl being sold into prostitution because she didn't have her freedom. I think we need to focus on that. And another remarkable thing here is if you look in this display case, there's a picture of her as an older woman. She became, if I'm not mistaken, a teacher in upstate New York and led a full and varied life. It's amazing to hear about Plymouth's role in fighting against slavery, but on another level, obviously, the church was very much involved in the actual transport of escaped slaves. Manhattan was a dangerous place for fugitives to be because there was so much southern trade. So Brooklyn was a place that would be safer. Lewis Tappan and Charles Ray were two of the key players in the anti-slavery movement who would send those fugitives over to, as they said, in, it's recorded, into Beecher's Church. So they would be coming up through Baltimore, they would be on the water, and from here they would go to Albany, Troy, New Bedford, or to Boston. And they might go to Canada from there, but those would be their next, essentially their next depots. Mm -hmm. And this was known by many as the Grand Central Depot, because this is where you came through then to fan out to different places. Why don't we bring you downstairs and show you what we're talking about? Sounds like a great idea. Okay, so we've just moved into the hallway behind the sanctuary, and John is opening a lock on a door. Ooh. We're looking down a dark stairwell. To a brick cellar. A lot of dirt on the floor. It's very, very warm. We're ducking underneath a brick arcade. Um, these must be, what, five-foot ceilings? Watch your head. Wow. Not many people come down here, huh? No, I, I can't stand up all the way. It's, no, it's sort of a low ceiling. Over. 
Those are Vil stanchions and piers stanchions, stanchions, to yes. hold up the, they're structural, to hold up the church or the buildings above. So that's standard construction of the time. You'll notice that there's a dirt floor. There's nothing elegant about this space. You can see that there's a stone foundation. Nothing nice is happening down here. It's not like we're throwing pool parties. So, so this is actually the basement under the original brick church, uh, and this would have been built in the 1830s. The new church was built in 1849 and 50. That's the new church. So in the 1850s, then, what was the activity happening down here? So, so this is where uh, a fugitive might have gone actually to Beecher's home, and he would have brought him here, or one of his people would have done that. There were other locations. This was not the only one. This is the one that still exists that we know of. One or two maximum would come down here for a day or two. They had to keep moving and never in large groups because there was always a danger in larger groups that bounty hunters would be after larger groups and there would be a bigger payoff for them. They would come down here where they might get some new clothes, get some decent food. There'd be no light other than perhaps a candle. There's a door out to Orange Street, which is where they probably came in. When that door would open, just imagine you hear the door creak and you do not know if those footfalls are your next meal or someone with a rifle ready to take you away. And just to reinforce this idea, this was illegal. Church, this the people, totally yeah. illegal. You could be arrested for this. Beecher could be arrested. Tapping could be arrested. This was something that they were taking on at the risk to their own reputation. What's interesting about trying to do the history of this as a historian is there are very few public records. If you're committing a crime, even if it's a righteous crime, you're not going to leave a lot of written records. However, in our documents, it's been found by historians, and particularly by Lois Rosebrooks, who spent a lot of time researching in private correspondence and in bank records and whatnot, exactly what went on here in order to corroborate that indeed this was a major stop on the Underground Railroad. Indeed, there was a lot of support going to abolitionists who were imprisoned, to getting blacks to their freedom, and all other sorts of activity here. So here's, what, here's something that Beecher said in a sermon. I will both shelter them, conceal them, or speed their flight. And while under my shelter or under my convoy, they shall be to me as my own flesh and blood. And he would say this at least annually when there were pew rents at the time. So the way churches paid for themselves, you paid for your pew, right, mm -hmm. for, for the year. He would remind everyone before they forked over their money, just remember, this is what I believe and what I will do. So... He was clear on what he believed and what we were doing. Do you have any idea how many people passed through uh, Plymouth Church? As, as Beth said, no records were kept in this church. We know through the Vigilance Society that they recorded dozens. Okay. And Charles Ray, we know, sent five or six here, but it's all secondary information. There were no, there were no journals kept here. Again, it would have been 2,000 bucks six months in prison uh, for doing it. But here downstairs in the basement, it's easy to forget that we're actually underneath a church. And this was not just a place where an orator was speaking to guests who paid admission, but rather a congregation who came here for spiritual reasons. So let's go upstairs. And in fact, we'll sit where a rather famous guest once sat. 
walking back up those stairs. Sorry about the dirt. Let's get this big door closed. Making our way in through the glass doors into the sanctuary. Smells like a church in here. <laughs> There's church here every Sunday at 11 o'clock. As you can see, there are two balconies. It can seat today about 2,000. This room is pretty much how it would have been for a Beecher sermon. Is that uh, more it's or less? Almost, almost identical. Mm -hmm. uh, the organ uh, was the largest pipe organ when it was put in the United States, when it was put in in 1866. So that's the backdrop that you would have seen. And Beecher would have been here. He probably did not stand, by all accounts, he did not stand behind a lectern. He would put his notes down, go off to the side. He would wander around, not unlike many preachers today. The difference is he would go on for an hour and a half or more and not a 15-minute message. But never with notes. Almost never with notes. But here's, here's something I really want you to see. There's a pew where a rather famous person sat. His name is right there. We're walking down the middle aisle to the fifth pew in. And we, and we see the signature of Abraham Lincoln with the date February 26, 1860. So Lincoln sat here in 1860, not yet a candidate for office. Not yet a candidate for office not widely known at all. He was from the Midwest. He was a young lawyer. He certainly had a lot of conviction, but he had not really made his mark on the national stage. But he was a friend of Henry Ward Beecher. And that starts the story about how he came to New York and launched his successful presidential campaign. Today, in today's language, Beecher may have been called uh, an operative for Lincoln politically. And a connector. A, a connector, if you will. And this is the only church in which Lincoln worshipped in New York. Uh, Lincoln was not a big churchgoer. And the next, very next day after worshipping here, uh, Lincoln gave his first very public abolitionist speech at Cooper Union in Manhattan. Now, I had read that he was scheduled to give that address here at Plymouth Church. That is exactly right. In fact, he was invited to New York by members of Plymouth and uh, he was to speak here. Some say that it was oversubscribed and enough people couldn't get into this auditorium. Some say it was bad weather and the boats, remember there was no Brooklyn Bridge yet, mm -hmm. uh, the boats wouldn't come over the rough East River. Others believed the political weather determined that the location should be Manhattan and not Brooklyn. But any of those reasons may be true. The point is, originally it was scheduled to be here. I just have to say thank you for inviting us to the church. I mean, it's just it's wonderful to, to be here both as a as a living place, but also as a as a monument to history. So thank you both for inviting us yes. and for John. sharing the history. Yes, John, Beth, thank you very much for the tour. It's been wonderful having you here, and we're so happy to share our history and our present with you. Please visit again. So we're back in the studio, having just come back from Plymouth Church and having just sat in the very pew that once held Abraham Lincoln in February of 1860. Right. And later that year, on November 6th, 1860, 
Abraham Lincoln would, of course, be elected president of the United States. Well, within a few months, seven states had seceded from the U.S., which would be followed by four more states the next April when war began between the North and the South. Now that takes us really to the end of our story Mm -hmm. of the Underground Railroad in New York, because now once in the Civil War, the Fugitive Slave Act was no longer being enforced. And why wasn't it being enforced? Because the states that had slavery in the South had decided to leave the country. That made them foreign nations, no longer states within the United States, and therefore there was no obligation on behalf of the other states to fulfill this requirement. It was essentially invalidated. On January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed slaves in these rebel states. Well, um, that was January 1863. A few months later, that summer in July, New York would erupt in horrible riots, the Civil War draft riots. And we have an entire podcast on the subject of the Civil War draft riots to get more of the nuances of that conflict. By 1865, with the end of the war and then with the death of Abraham Lincoln, this era was over. Because there are so many interesting sites in New York City that are associated with the Underground Railroad, we highly recommend that you take one of the many tours that take place in New York including a few that are friends of the podcast. Inside Out Tours, Stacey Toussaint, who operates that tour company, was on our show, our Bronx History Show. That's right. And they have a tour called Slavery and Underground Railroad. Walks of New York also has an Underground Railroad walking tour. And then Kamau Ware, who was on that Before Harlem show, hopefully you all know or have heard about his Black Gotham Experience Tours, Many of the tours that he operates are about early Black and African experience in New York. This year, in 2018, they will also be offering tours related to this subject, to the Underground Railroad. For more information there, just go to blackgotham.com. Plymouth Church also operates weekly history tours that take place at the church at 1230 on Sundays. For more reading on the subject, we both highly recommend Bound for Canaan, The Underground Railroad, and The War for the Soul of America by Fergus Bordwich. And the previously mentioned book by Eric Foner called Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. And finally, I want to direct everyone to go visit the Brooklyn Historical Society, who for years have had a sort of semi-permanent exhibition there called In Pursuit of Freedom about Brooklyn abolitionists. And so a lot of the people that we mentioned are in that exhibit. It's a really engaging exhibit. It's very interactive. And the exhibit will be running throughout 2018. A huge thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. We're only able to do this show because of your support. Greg and I will be announcing a get-together for those of you who are at the $10 and up level. Uh, We're going to actually be planning many, many more of them in 2018. So please head to Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys to join in the fun. You can also check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. And we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
So thank you for joining us as we explored New York City's role in the Underground Railroad. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.